Okay, and so we are starting on, uh, this is uh, Lesson 8. Everybody on Lesson 8? We are on the, well, the, yeah, we're in the book of Mark. Mark, I heard that name. Yes, yes. The title of the lesson is Jesus Further Trains the Twelve, and the scripture is Mark 9 and verse 9 through the end of chapter 10. So, Lord, we do thank you. This is uh, toward the end of Jesus' ministry, just as he's going toward Jerusalem, and he's teaching the 12. This is the third time he'll teach them that he is going to die. And, uh, of course, they struggle with that. And, you know, in retrospect, we thank you so much that you were willing to do that so that we our sins could be paid for, um, because they wouldn't be paid for otherwise. And uh, so we thank you that you're willing to go through that. We pray that you would help us to understand and uh, that we could glorify you while we're waiting for you to come and get us. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah. Yeah, the idea of the suffering Messiah they didn't like very much. Yeah, which we wouldn't either. Okay, so the first section is Jesus comes down from the mountain. And that is chapter 9, verses 9 through 29. And I can start off reading that one. All right. So remember when we left off last time, um, Jesus had been transfigured on the mountain. And this is after that. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. That seems funny to me, too. They asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, What are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth, and grinds his teeth, and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, 
All things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Okay. Jesus comes down, and he's disappointed (laughs) immediately. So verse 9 He says, as they were coming down, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until he had been resurrected from the dead. So Jesus said, don't share anything about this until the resurrection. And you know what? Peter did share in his book, the second letter that he wrote in 2 Peter, 2 Peter 1, 16. says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter now is telling the whole world, and even we know it, that he's testified to this transfiguration. So and then verse 10, they wondered. You know, this is kind of a confusing. It says they seized upon that statement about until the Son of Man rose from the dead, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. And, you know, I would think they'd seen Jesus raise people from the dead already. They should know what that that meant. But I have a couple commentaries that both said they wondered not about the resurrection, but why did the Son of Man have to rise from the dead? You know, because the Son of Man is the reigning and ruling Messiah. Why would he? So they focused on that portion of it and avoided Isaiah 52 and 53 which talks about the suffering Messiah. And they had uh, problems, you know, reconciling those two things in their mind. And then they asked him a question about Elijah. Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And then Jesus gives us a clue about how Elijah relates to John the Baptist. So, Elijah, there's a couple of prophecies in Malachi concerning Elijah, which is the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi 3, verse 1, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So this is kind of a parallel passage to Isaiah 40. Um, 
But then in Malachi 4, 5, and 6, it says, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. What Jesus said is that, yes, Elijah does come first, does first come and restore all things. And then he goes back to what is written about the Son of Man. Yet, how is it written of the Son of Man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So he's still trying to get this into their heads, that, yes, the Messiah will reign, but he will also suffer. And then he says, but I say to you that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished. And we know what happened to John the Baptist. He was executed brutally. And so, in at least some sense, John the Baptist came in the power of Elijah and did prepare the way for the Lord to come in his first advent. And, you know, the, the people say that Elijah will come, the, the real Elijah will come again, and I don't know. I, I can't say to that, I, you know. Yeah, well, we'll have, there's some things we just, we're not sure about. Yeah, and that, that's one of the things that I am not sure about. Um, but Jesus did say that John the Baptist fulfilled at least a portion of Elijah's role here as the forerunner. So then Jesus comes in, and he comes down the mountain, and he comes into an argument with scribes and disciples, and then a failure, an argument and a failure with the disciples. And so one of the crowd, verse 17, answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute, and it throws him, makes him stiff. I told your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do it. So I'm sure the disciples were frustrated by this, because remember, they had just come back from a mission trip where Jesus had given them authority to cast out demons. And we can see that in chapter 6, Verse 7 says, And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Verse 13 says, And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. So he had given them like a spiritual gift where they could, had the ability, they had the authority to cast out a demon, you know, and uh, they were apparently not praying as they're doing this. Some, the quarterly said something here that I wanted to bring out. His reminder about prayer probably means they had assumed that the power to heal was in themselves, not in God. Our biggest failures are failures of faith. And our lack of faith often becomes noticeable in our lack of prayer. In my life, that is true. This gift of exorcism that 
um, he had given them. Of course, perhaps you know if if this was a messianic miracle, and if this had been another type of demon, perhaps they could have done it. But if they could get the name, um, you know, our communication with God is not temporary. If we are in Christ. Our prayer life is not a temporary that comes on and goes like a, like it seems this gift to us. So we want, basically, to us it means we should be praying. Always. High and mighty. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we want to guard against getting high and mighty. Yeah, and look at Jesus' response to this. Verse 19. He answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. So who who, do you, who is he talking about here? He's talking about the disciples. Yeah, he was frustrated with them. So you, you ever wonder how much you disappoint Jesus yourself? Jesus was disappointed in the disciples' faith. What does Jesus think about your faith, do you think? No. I want him to think I have faith in him. Yeah, yeah. We we want him to know that we trust him. We don't give him enough credit. We we limit his ability too, too often by not just trusting in him, you know. So anyway, this is what the uh, Jesus asked what happened to the son. And the father says, It is often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can. So Jesus is still in this mindset, you know. If you, if you can. Yeah. So all things are possible to him who believes. So immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. I love that. Yeah, I love that. And I have said that before. So we know that Hebrews 11 and verse 6 tells us that without faith it is impossible to please God. That is how you please God. You believe him. And... uh, So, yeah, then verse 25 is a messianic miracle. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. So, Jesus does not need to know the name. You know, he doesn't have to hear him. He just casts him out. And he's the only one who can do that. Yeah. Because he is God. And so that is why um, it is not through a spiritual gift that this can come out. It's through the direct act of God. And that's why he says this kind can only come out by prayer. The direct act of God. Let's do it. Yeah, at the, at the resurrection. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But... Um, but he, you know, manages it. In the, so anyway, can he do that? Yes. Will he do that? That's up to him. So, um, so prayer and faith are clearly interlinked. 
prayer and faith. Uh, we pray because we believe. You know, prayer is a manifestation of faith. And the Lord appreciates it. And I do think that if you ask for him to increase your faith, he will do it. You know, if you're sincere. So the next section is Jesus teaches about greatness. About greatness. Can somebody read 30 through 50 of chapter 9? Okay, thank you, ma'am. That's quite a mouthful. So, verse 31, For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. So he's t teaching them this over and over. This is the third time. Maybe this is the second time. Yeah, I think he does it one more time. And, uh, you know, he's preparing them that they're going to lose him here. Teaching openly, it's not in parables or anything like that. He's telling them right out front, I'm going to be killed. And I will rise again in three days. But they just don't buy it. Verse 32, but they did not understand this statement. And they were afraid to ask him. They were probably afraid to ask him because he just was a little bit hacked off with him about the, the deal with this demon-possessed boy, you know. And, uh, but, you know, I mean, Jesus is so gracious. Um, but they were afraid to ask him, so they... <laughs> so they didn't. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, verses 33 and 34, they, they came to Capernaum, which is again in the northwest shore, the Sea of Galilee. And when he was in the house, he began to question them, what were you discussing on the way? As though he didn't know. But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. So, Jesus was teaching that he will die. And they were thinking about their own ambitions at the same time. Okay? Now that, they probably did not want to broadcast that. They were embarrassed by that. So then he goes, in verse 35, sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, so now he tells them how to do it. He shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he sent him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. Whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. So this is how to be great in Jesus' eyes. You know, Brad Maston, when we had our little conference, he spoke in in Duluth also, and I think that's where I heard him say this. He says, you know, we think about who's going to, in that time, you know, in the resurrection, who's going to be great. And there's going to be this great thing, just glorious and fanfare and everything, and the and the nursery workers are going to walk in. I was going to say, our teachers yeah. are the nursery workers that where you hand off your kids with snotty noses every week are going to walk in because they were humble. They were humble. 
And uh, that's what James tells us. So it's not what you think. It's not the what the world says makes you great. James 4, 6 says that he gives greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And also 1 Peter 5, verse 6, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. So the way, and we've mentioned this many times, the way up in the Christian life is down, is to humble yourself. And then in the, at the appropriate time, God will raise you up. And, you know, the appropriate time will probably be at the Bema, at the Bema seat, judgment. That's, that'll be the appropriate time. Because then you won't have a sin nature that will feed on that and make you sin, you know. Verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. Jesus said, Do not hinder him. So this was obviously a follower of Jesus. He was just not one of the twelve. Okay? Because he was casting out demons in Jesus' name. It says, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. Then he goes on to say, For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name, as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. So those who help believers are rewarded. So John is probably a little jealous here. Because someone is casting out demons and they failed. They had just failed to cast out demons and the Lord had gotten a little upset with him. Yeah, I think that's probably more likely. Yeah, because the Lord is not going to reward unbelievers. Yeah, that's 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 yeah. more direct. Yeah, yeah, more directed within the church. The Lord will not reward unbelievers. The only thing the Lord does with unbelievers is convicts them. So basically, helping other believers is a rewardable thing. You know, that's another thing that Brad Maston talked about when he was here with us. What is rewardable? Well, what is rewardable is what the Lord wants you to do. You know, that is what is re rewardable. And so that is walking in the Spirit. And the way we walk in the Spirit is we expose ourselves to God's Word, and as the Spirit communicates with us through that, and it motivates us to action, those things are rewardable. So this is 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So good would be faith-based action, faith-based speech, faith-based prayer, Things that are faith-based. They're based because you trust in Christ. Everything else is bad. <laughs> 
Sin, of course, is bad. But everything that's done in the flesh, not out of faith, that appears good from the outside, is not rewardable. Yeah. It is. You know, I, I, I'm sure that we'll be rewarded for things we don't think about. We don't think that that's really rewardable, but, you know, he has, he thinks differently than we do. And they feel exactly the same way. That's right. So then now verses 42 through the end are, have, have been misused. I have a story about this. When I was on call at St. Clair, uh, we had a guy who uh, emasculated himself in the parking lot and put the proceeds into a blender and then walked into the ER. And it was, and I asked him why he did that afterwards. We, me and a urologist stopped the bleeding and sewed his urethra to the skin, what was left of it, and he put him in the ICU. And he quoted this because he was struggled with sexual immorality. And so he cut it off. That is a miss reading of this passage <laughs> he was i wonder if he was possessed you know because he was crazy as a loon yeah and he it was just the oddest thing because he was in there he's laying in the pool of his own blood and he was just very calm and it was really weird so he took this out of context, because if if you think about it, you know, it talks about cutting off your hand, cutting off your foot, removing your eye. Is that going to stop you from sin? No, it's not going to stop you from sin, um, because that is not where sin originates in, you know, in your physical. It's your nature that causes sin. So let's just read that. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. So, causing a a young child who believes in Jesus to sin is a serious offense. And also, I would say that someone who is young in the faith, even though they're not young physically, that is a serious offense if you cause them to sin or mislead them. So he says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So what is he saying here? This is hyperbole, obviously. Hyperbole. What is he saying here? Sin is very serious. Yeah, sin is serious. Yeah, you want to be in fellowship with God, you know, and uh, 
And so, and the way to do that is to reckon yourself dead to sin, because in Jesus that is true. You are dead to sin because you died with him. And that should defuse it. And then instead of that, you present yourself to God. What would you like me to do? And he will give you another occupation <laughs> that will take your mind off of the sin. Yeah, if you're right. Don't put yourself yeah. in a place, especially where you have a, an, an issue, yeah. a problem yourself. Yeah, you don't want to put yourself yeah, in a place where it's easy to fall. So basically, the believer's struggle against sin is to be taken seriously. It's a real issue. We do have issues with it. And the key is, you know what I just said, consider yourself dead to sin. That's the true fact. And do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust because you don't have to any longer. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And if we fail, which we do, we have 1 John 1, 9, right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is our fallback. That is how we are restored to fellowship. So um, we just want to deal with sin honestly and uh, seriously. And then he ends up saying, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So, you know, what I believe this is, is you can expect as a believer that you will undergo trial. You will undergo trial of some kind. That's just the normal Christian life. Um, and it's meant to improve us, you know. It's meant to have us trust in the Lord. Um, and as you go through trial, you want to trust in the Lord and not fall into sin because that would make you unsalty. Our saltiness draws people to the Lord. That, that is not, you know, if that is, and that's so against the prosperity gospel. That is so against the prosperity gospel. The normal Christian life is a life of trial. That is normal. That's how it, if, if you're having trials, that's how the Bible says it's going to be, you know. And so you trust the Lord through the trials and you grow uh, spiritually. Okay, so section C, Jesus teaches about marriage and children. I bet I'll read that one. So getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother 
and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And the house of the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Okay, so there was a thing in the quarterly that I thought was good that I should relay to you. This is on page 66 of the quarterly. It says that Jesus made his way toward Jerusalem. Five different groups or individuals came to him with requests. First was the Pharisees. The second was parents with their children. The third was a rich man. The fourth was James and John. And the fifth was a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. Of these five groups or individuals, only two asked their requests of Jesus properly. And so only those two received what they wanted. Okay? So we can watch these as we go through them. The first one are the Pharisees. Now, are they going to ask properly? No. <laughs> did they ever? No, they did Because they said in verse 2, some Pharisees came up to Jesus testing him. And Jesus himself said to Satan that you're not to test God, which is what they're doing here. So here um, in this section, Mark skips about five months of Jesus' ministry. And if you have a quarterly, if you look in the back page, it'll show that it skips out this between the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10, about five months are left out. Chapter 10 is just before Jesus goes into Jerusalem to be crucified. So the Pharisees come testing him, and now they're in Perea, which is east of the Jordan, and it's in Herod's jurisdiction. And they're asking Jesus about marriage in Herod's jurisdiction. And you remember Herod and his marriage, right? He had married his uh, niece, and they were both married to other people, which they had not dealt with. And so it was an immoral marriage. Yeah. And then it was involved in, in, in incest. Yeah. <laughs> So, now, look what Jesus answers to them. He answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? Note he says command. What did Moses command concerning marriage? And what did they answer? They answered, Moses permitted a man 
to write his certificate of divorce and send her away. Moses did not command that. He permitted that. They didn't answer his question. That is not what Moses commanded. Moses permitted. So Jesus goes to the creation account. He says, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made us humans, male and female. Yep. That's news. That's news. <laughs> yeah, that's for us today. Yeah. Some people forget that. Yeah. And so a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And then when they do that, they are a unit. They become one flesh. And Jesus adds something from the Genesis account, verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So there is a standard. And that, again, the quarterly had some good stuff in it this week. So what is God's ideal for marriage? That's right. Right. One man for one woman for one lifetime. Yeah, equally yoked, right. So that is the ideal. Yes, but, right, that is the standard. Now, there are many of us, myself included, who have broken the standard. Um, but there is also grace, right? And so, and we're grateful <laughs> for the grace because... Many of us have broken the standard. So, but that is the standard, and the standard does not change. One man for one woman for one lifetime. Um, and that is under so much assault today. It is just ridiculous. So now Jesus in this passage says that divorce um, initiated by either party with remarriage is a sin. It's adultery. In this passage, there is no exception. In, now, in uh, the Matthew passage, there is an exception, but the Greek word used is pornea. Not, um, it's a different word used for married adultery. It starts with an M. I forget the Greek word. And so, and I've heard that, and I do believe it, that that, because the if you were betrothed in as a Jew, you spent a year waiting to prove your loyalty before you consummated the marriage. And so if you cheated within that year, that was considered adultery. Pornea. And so I think that is what Christ in Matthew is making an exception for. But you know, Paul goes over this, the the intricacies of it, um, much more in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But basically, for a Christian, there is no divorce. For a Christian, there is no divorce. Or it's a sin. You are allowed to separate with the idea of reconciling, you know, because you can get, you can get into some dangerous issues with domestic violence sometimes. And so you're, you know, you're allowed to separate with the idea of reconciliation. But for the Christian, 
if you want to go through marriage without sin, there is no such thing as divorce. And that is why being equally yoked is so intensely important um, when you marry. So, and usually we're young when we get married and we're stupid and we don't even think about it. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's, that's what was my case. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's where I was at. You know, so basically, Jesus here is talking about digamy. Has anybody ever heard of digamy? Digamy. Digamy. Yeah. Digamy is getting married twice. No. That's marrying two people at the same time. Digamy is the idea that, and Charles Ryrie was like this, you know, a theologian that we look up to greatly. Yeah. I, I first ran into it in his book called Basic Theology. And he felt that you could never remarry again. And his wife actually left him. This theologian, he never remarried. And he died that way. Digamy, it's the Greek prefix, means two. Two marriages. Can't, you can't have it. He said only one. He's. I think he's taking it too far, because that goes against what Paul says in First Corinthians chapter seven. So anyway, the next section is, you know, there there is more more to it, and First Corinthians chapter seven has the most uh, fleshed out uh, discussion about. Um, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And that's where I would um, send people to if they want to study about that more. So what happens when you get married? Sometimes you have children, <laughs> right? And so he brings the children. Now the parents bring the children to Jesus, and, Jesus, and the disciples are trying to shoo them away, and Jesus says, don't do that. Because children have faith that Jesus wants to cultivate in adults. Faith that trusts him without reservation, you know. And uh, so he, I'm sorry. Well, the parents wanted the children to be blessed, and Jesus was very happy to do it. He did bless them. I just want to say a couple of things about the rich young ruler. So... That I'm not going to read it. That is chapter 10, 17 through 31. But the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus and says, What must I do to obtain eternal life? And so this what must I do is what the world thinks. It is works-based. It is all the false religions. He calls him good, and Jesus says, Good, only God is good. And only God can give salvation. You can't do anything. Because nothing you can do is adequate for salvation. It must be given to you. And so he wanted salvation by law, and so Jesus was giving him salvation by law. First he told him about the things, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor father and mother. This is all between people. And he felt pretty good about that. He said, oh, I've done all those things. I've done all those things. I'm sure if he examined it closely, you'd find out that no, he hadn't. 
But then Jesus put his finger on the issue and he said, okay, go sell everything you have and follow me. And he couldn't do that. Now, did Jesus ever give the gospel here? What is the gospel? If you told, if somebody asked you, what is the gospel, what, you, what would you say to them? Right, right. The gospel is, the Messiah will die. He will die on your behalf. He will rise from the dead. If you believe that, you're saved. You see that nowhere in this passage. Because he wanted it based on law. Jesus gave it based on law. And the idea is the law is our tutor to drive us to Christ. To drive us to Christ so that we might... What, how does it go? So that we might be justified by faith. Yeah. And the, you know maybe sometime later, as he was thinking, it did but we don't have that in the text here because it just made him sad and he wandered off, <laughs> you know. Made him sad and he wandered off because wealth was his God. His wealth, he had a lot of land and he was unwilling. See, if we understand Jesus rightly, we know that in him we have the whole world. We have everything material. Um. And uh, so it doesn't matter if, you know. Now, does that mean that everyone needs to sell everything they have? No, it does not. Everyone has their own cross. I would submit to you that everyone has their own little idol that the Lord will pinpoint and say, that you must give up, or this you must give up. For me, it was my career in heart surgery. You know, I, everything was secondary to that. I didn't care what happened with anything else. And uh, that was an idol. I had to get rid of it. So I, I think that that is, I think that is probably true for everyone. That everyone has something that they don't want to give up. That they would rather hang on to, <laughs> you know. Yeah, if he sat through yeah. the Sermon on the Mount, yeah, it would wrong. become clear to yeah, him that yeah. even again, with other people, he had yeah. broken the sure, laws. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I am going to just read this last section on servanthood, and then I'll let everyone escape. So this is chapter 10, verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him, and scourge him, and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, listen to this. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. <laughs> After he just said, <laughs> Yeah, he's going to die. 
But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you, that whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So the last little section is about Bartimaeus who asked for his sight, and Jesus said, You got it, my friend. So, Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this teaching on how to be great in your kingdom. It is to serve others. So we pray that you would help us to do that cheerfully. In Jesus' name, amen.